Put your bulletins away and take out your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 13. John 13, verses 36 to 38. Hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. As far as the reading of God's holy and inspired word, you may be seated. Let's pray together and ask God to reveal his word to us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your holy word, which we have the privilege of knowing and being able to study. We thank you for faithful Christians in the past who have given their lives to preserve and pass on your word. So Lord, we ask that you would enlighten us now. Give us spiritual wisdom and understanding as we look at the text and consider its meaning. And may we go forth from this place of worship as changed people by you, that we would seek to walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing in your sight, that we would bear fruit in every good work, and that you would grant us supernatural courage to spread the good news of the gospel of Christ to those around us who are not in the fold. Lord, work in us and work through us. I ask also that you would help me now to proclaim boldly and truthfully. And may you accomplish your purposes through this preaching. May you be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, We pick back up in our series in John. And if you'll remember, the last few weeks we've been in the upper room in the Last Supper and that extended discourse between Jesus and his disciples before his death and resurrection. So they had supper, they partook of the Passover meal, and Judas has already left the room to go and betray Jesus and to bring the guards and the chief priests for his arrest. And so Jesus repeats what he had already said to the crowds. He repeated it to his disciples now. He said, where I am going, you cannot come. And so today, as you've already guessed, we're going to look at the response of our favorite disciple, Peter. And it's interesting, all four gospel writers uh, include this in their uh, accounts. And so we're going to to look at three of them today because they give us a fuller picture of what's going on. You get a few different perspectives. So let's start by, uh, in John, looking at John's account. And Peter responds to what Jesus just said about going somewhere. And he asks the question, well, where are you going, Lord? Now, this is a somewhat, at least in my opinion, foolish question, uh, but also understandable coming from Peter. Uh, It's foolish, I think, because Jesus has predicted his death uh, three times already, and he's alluded to it a few other times. And if you remember one of the last times when Peter questioned Jesus and said, Lord, no, not you. Well, Jesus calls him Satan, right? Get behind me, Satan. 
Uh, so <laughs> Peter's been sharply rebuked for this already. Uh, so that's why I'm surprised that he would ask again, where are you going, Lord? You would think Peter understood by now uh, that Jesus was on his way to death. But as we see, it's often harder to change someone's understanding than we think at first. Now, the disciples, the Jews in general, and Peter specifically, all had different ideas about what the Messiah would do, how he would reign, how he would bring in his kingdom. And so again and again throughout Jesus's ministry, he's correcting and, and expanding the understanding of the disciples. But it seems to me that they don't ever truly understand until after Jesus has finished his work, after he's resurrected. And so Peter again is asking, where are you going, Lord? And now Jesus repeats somewhat what he said in the previous passage, but with a slight twist. Now he's talking directly to Peter. Now he uses the word follow. Right? You, Peter, cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus here is talking about his death on the cross and is explaining that Peter is not ready to bear the cross, but in time he will be. Now Peter seems to at least partially understand what Jesus is saying by his res response where he says, why can't I follow you? I'm ready to lay down my life for you. But Jesus, Jesus knows Peter and declares that he will deny his Lord three times before the rooster crows. That is, before the next morning. Now, before we dive into all the deeper insights uh, of this story, uh, I want us to turn to Matthew's account, and we'll see a little bit of a different perspective. So turn to Matthew, uh, chapter 26. Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish audience, and so he spends a lot of time tying the threads between the Old Testament and Jesus and his ministry together, showing that Jesus is the Messiah they were all waiting for. So Matthew 26, verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So we get the same basic story here. But now the bonus information is that the falling away applies, first of all, to all the disciples. And it's based on, was prophesied by the Old Testament scriptures. And we see that Peter is still confident that even though all the other disciples would fall away, he would remain steadfast and faithful beside Christ. So in other words, he believes the prophecy is almost true. Now when you think about it that way, Peter's being very bold, and I would argue very foolish at the same time. He's claiming to be a great disciple, right? the greatest who would not fall away. And yet when his master states, 
that all will fall away, Peter thinks his master is wrong. Now, it's one thing to deny that Jesus is right when he says something, although that's not gone well in the past for Peter. But it gets even worse when you have to deny Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures. Right? Jesus says the falling, of, falling away of the sheep will happen to fulfill the scriptures, and Peter again doubles down. In essence, he's saying, no way, the scriptures are wrong and you are wrong, Jesus. I will not fall away, even unto death. It's kind of a typical immature man's response. And like every child in this world, Peter's being stubborn and thinking a lot more highly of himself than he ought to. And yet we know what happened. Only a few hours later, uh, as Jesus predicted, Peter couldn't even admit association with Christ to a servant girl. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now I want us to stop here and think a moment because Peter's pride is not unique to Peter. Don't we all want to think ourselves strong enough to stand up for our Lord even unto death? In the imaginary future, where someone calls you to renounce your faith in Christ or to die. Well, we all imagine ourselves remaining faithful, don't we? I mean, we want to imagine that. We, we want to be faithful. That's what Peter wanted to do. Even if everyone else denied Christ, he was sure that he would not. But when it really came down to it, he didn't have the strength to be crucified beside Christ. In fact, he didn't have the strength to admit that he knew Christ. His pride made him believe that he was ready for anything, but he was not as strong as he thought. So what can we make of this? We also have pride. We also tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. As much as I would like to believe that I would be ready to go to my death for my Lord, I have not had to face that trial. I really don't know. But I think there's a key to this question of readiness and strength. The question is, where is your trust? Where is your trust? Do I have the strength? Not even, maybe. On my own, I'm confident I would renounce anything to save my skin. I don't have the strength. But Christ within me can enable me to move mountains. Christ within me can enable me to die for him, even with a smile on and joy in my heart. I know Peter was not relying on Christ for strength in that moment. No, he believed he was strong enough in himself. And so when we imagine ourselves in that imaginary future, where we need to stand up to death for Christ's sake, I think it's important we also imagine that we've been pleading to Christ for strength. We should also imagine that we are acknowledging our own weakness and inability and also imagine that the Holy Spirit does grant us that supernatural resolve to be a martyr for Christ. For that is the only way that anyone can stand up to such opposition from Satan. The Spirit of God within us 
giving us everything we need. And so, my brothers and sisters, let us not despair when we think of how weak we are. Let us take comfort that God will answer our prayers in every time of need. Let us take comfort that we do not need to rely on our own strength at this moment to conquer such a great thing in the future. Because God has not given us the ability right now to stand up to death in this moment. But if we rely on his strength, we must trust that if he calls us to do so, he will also grant us the strength to stand up for him. And we see also in Peter's life, the one who denied his Lord three times eventually did go on to die for him. But in the meantime, since we don't have many martyrs in Canada, praise the Lord, uh, but there are martyrs in other countries of the world, we can still apply this principle on a smaller scale. The question is, where can we be a faithful follower of Christ in the face of opposition? In front of our family members who think that Christianity is foolish or maybe hateful, do we stand up for the honor of Christ? Or when unbelievers around us mock Christ, do we correct them? Do we identify ourselves with Christ in front of the mob in the classroom? Or stand by idly as others blaspheme our Lord? Or do we, like Peter, not admit to being Christ's disciple when asked by an unbeliever? Imagine someone comes to you and says, Are you saying that you believe that your religion is right and every other one is wrong? How arrogant of you. But I guess you just believe what your parents told you, right? I pity you. Maybe one day you'll come to know the truth. Sounds harsh, right? I've heard some of those things. That's what the world thinks of those who follow Christ. So I believe there are many small opportunities, at least small in comparison to dying for our Lord, that we get every day. Or we can deny Christ, or we can display ourselves as Christ's disciple boldly. So how do we act in those scenarios? Do your unbelieving friends know what you believe? Do they know that you believe that they are lost and doomed to hell if they do not repent? Do they know that you believe that Christ is able to save them despite all their sins? If they don't have a clue of what you believe, then have you been hiding in the courtyard like Peter, afraid to confess Christ as your Lord? I believe the longer that you stay hidden, hiding your light, the easier it is to never light, let your light shine in the darkness. Now, if you have specific situations that you don't know what to do in, you need some help, uh, young people especially, go to a Christian elder that you trust. Right? Whether that's a parent, someone in the church, your pastor, 
uh, or some other Christian that has walked the path longer than you, go ask for some advice. But may we all soberly think on this question. If we are scared to step out in faith for Christ in the small things, how will we stand if things get worse? I think the key to confessing Christ boldly is the same in the small situations and in the big ones. We must not trust our own strength, but run to Christ for aid so that we are able to be bold in these small trials. And then if God wills, we will be prepared to face the tougher ones in the future. Back to our passage in Matthew 26. I want us to notice one other thing, the grace of God, the grace of Jesus in this passage. He says, you will all fall away, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. You notice what he did there? He predicts their sin, and then he says, I've already forgiven you, I'm going to go before you to Galilee, I haven't rejected you. Isn't that amazing? I bring this up because it's a repeated theme here. We see it uh, not only with Jesus there, but also in the Zechariah passage that Matthew quotes. You'll notice there was a, a quote in there, Jesus said, I will strike the shepherd. I invite you to turn to Zechariah because it's very relevant Uh, Zechariah is the fourth last book in the Old Testament, so it's only a few pages back. Zechariah chapter 12, let's turn there. Now Zechariah 12 and 13 contain a lot of relevant details and and prophecies that are interesting, but you can read over that later. I'll just highlight a few verses. So Zechariah 12, verse 10. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Go down to chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now down to 13, verse 7. This is what was quoted in the Matthew passage. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested." They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So I'll give you my summarized version of that last passage. God the Father will take his sword and strike the shepherd, who happens to be the one beside him, or the one close to him, near to him. Now I believe this is a reference to Christ's deity. 
Especially when we think about chapter 12, verse 10, that first one we read, where God said that he will be the one whom is pierced. So God will be pierced, and God will strike the one who is pierced. And thus we have one member of the Godhead striking another member of the Godhead. The Father pouring out his wrath on the Son. And after the striking of the shepherd, the sheep will scatter, and the whole land of Israel will be split into thirds, two-thirds being cut off, one-third being saved and refined through fire. And all these events in Zechariah are in the context of great rebellion in Israel. So God did not reject his people, even though they utterly rejected him. So bring this back to Jesus. We have the rejection of the Messiah by the disciples, and then restoration and reconciliation from Jesus. The disciples represent a portion of the third that are saved, even though much of the nation is lost. God left himself a remnant, that is, a group who remained faithful among the Jews. And Zechariah prophesied hundreds of years before that this would happen. And when Jesus quotes the prophecy in the upper room, it's merely hours before it would be fulfilled. But just as true. God would not abandon his people, despite their apostasy and abandonment of him. And Jesus did not abandon his disciples, despite their falling away from him, despite their denial. So I wanted to point that out, that restoration of God's people to bring comfort to you. For I believe we all have times and seasons where we doubt, and often it is because of sin. We backslide. We may even deny Christ by our words and our actions. And then we question whether we can be restored to fellowship with God. It's happened to me. Has it happened to you? It can happen with any sort of sin. Uh, I'll give an example. Perhaps you and your wife struggle with unforgiveness toward each other. Right? You know it's wrong to be bitter. You know that God has said he will forgive you as you forgive others. And so you spend time and effort fighting this sin, spending time in prayer and in the word, using help from other believers, committing to yourself and to God that you will forgive, and sure of yourself that you will overcome that bitterness. You've defeated that sin. And then three days later, maybe even three hours later, your wife gave you an opportunity to revive that bitterness your argument spirals out of control, and then you're back where you started, or maybe even worse off. It's a hard place to be. Can God redeem you? Can God save your marriage? The answer is yes. Take heart, brother and sister. God is ready to extend gospel grace to you and restore you to fellowship if you repent and humble yourself and come to him again. Look at Peter. There is no greater denial that could be made than denying and even cursing that you do not know Christ. And despite that, Peter was restored. Jesus held on to him 
Remember in John 10, Jesus said, no one is able to snatch the sheep out of his hand. Jesus is able to save even the worst of sinners. Jesus is able and willing to save his enemies. He calls all people everywhere to repent of their wickedness, to repent of their blasphemy, and to come to him in faith. So if you have not done that, he is also calling you to repent. He is also calling you to confess your sin, to fall down before his feet in faith. I want us to turn to one more account in Luke. So if you'll turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke records for us quite a different uh, part of it. Not a different version, but a different uh, perspective. Luke 22, verse 31 Here Jesus uses Peter's other name, Simon, uh, but we're still talking about the same guy, so don't get confused. Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. So Luke gives us what I'm calling a behind-the-scenes version where Jesus brings in Satan's role in Peter's denial. Now, this isn't the first time that Satan is mentioned uh, in this evening. We've already been told that Satan entered into Judas, and that's why he left to go and betray Jesus. But now Jesus tells Peter, Satan demanded to have all the disciples in order to sift them like wheat. Now, English doesn't specify whether it's singular or plural. It's just you. Uh, but the Greek does, thankfully. So in verse 31, those, the first part of, of that passage, the you is plural. So if we're more precise in English, it would have to be you all. Right? Satan demanded you all, but I have prayed for you, Peter. In verse 32 and onward, you is singular. So Jesus singles out Peter as the one for whom he is praying. And he says, when you have turned, that is, turned back to follow Christ, strengthen your brothers. Now, there's a few things I want to say. We don't want to assume more about what's going on than what we see or read. We don't know what Jesus specifically prayed for, for Peter, besides that his faith would not fail. Now, Peter's denial of Christ does show a lapse in faith, but it's not failure, right? It's a backsliding, but not a total loss. And so for those few people that would charge Christ with an ineffective prayer, that charge does not hold. Peter does turn again and ends up becoming one of the bravest and fiercest disciples of the early church. If you read Acts, then you'll find that out. <clears throat> and remember also in John, where Jesus said, you can't follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Well, if Jesus was talking about his death 
on a cross, which I believe he was, he was right, as Peter eventually did share that same fate, death on a cross. Now, we also don't know if Jesus meant to indicate that he was not praying for the other disciples. He simply doesn't specify, but he's talking to Peter. Uh, Regardless, Satan only receives Judas, that much we know, and the rest are preserved by Christ. So I think it's safe to assume that Christ did pray for them as well. So we've talked about Peter and his pride and how that played a role into his denial. Now let's consider the spiritual battle that's happening behind the scenes. Jesus tells us Satan demanded to have his disciples to sift them like wheat. Now the sifting of wheat, as you probably know, is a process of separation. Right? The goal is to take the wheat out of the chaff and blow the chaff away. And that's garbage. Keep the wheat. Now there was a piece of chaff in the wheat of the disciples. That was Judas. And Satan had him. Satan would have desired all the disciples, of course, but Satan is only allowed to do what God permits. Satan may demand, but Christ grants or refuses his request. Christ said about Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, is God going to listen to Satan or to Christ? I hope it's obvious that Satan has no power except that which God grants him. And this is another comfort, very great comfort. As fearsome as an evil and frightening as the devil can be, we know he cannot lift a finger apart from the permission of God. And thus we do not have to fear Satan, nor his minions, his demons, because God is on our side. But Judas, Judas was not saved by God because in God's holy and wise providence, he saw fit to judge him according to his sin. And so we must grapple with that hard truth that God does not grant mercy to all in the same way. Some receive justice according to their deeds. Judas was a sinner. Judas deserved death. Right? And sin has infected the whole human race through Adam, our forefather. And so we're all deserving of death. And if we die in our sins and are handed over to judgment, the verdict will be punishment and damnation, which is true justice. Eternal punishment as payment for sin against the eternal God. God does not unjustly punish anyone, but will render to everyone according to his works. So when Satan entered into Judas, he merely received what he deserved. And truly anyone who does not have faith in Christ is bound by Satan. They are his slave. But what about the other disciples and Peter? If God will judge us all according to our works, we see all the disciples fell away and rejected Jesus. Why does Jesus call them back and save them? They deserve the same thing as Judas. Everyone among the twelve rejected him. They denied him. They deserve to be eternally punished by him. But Christ only handed over Judas to Satan 
and the rest he prayed for, that they would turn back. And we see the results of his prayer. When Judas realized his terrible mistake, he did not repent, but rather in misery and guilt, he went to commit suicide. But when the other disciples met Jesus again, they believed in him. They were granted true understanding of who Christ was. They had faith in him. They trusted in him. We see this in the response of Thomas. When he saw Christ, he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. What shame they would have felt in that moment when they first saw Jesus, knowing they all denied him and fell away. And yet Jesus said, Peace be with you. And then again, Peace be with you. God had granted forgiveness in answer to Jesus' prayer. So I want to close with that thought of Jesus praying for his people. Now this doctrine would be called the intercession of Christ. But saying the intercession of Christ really doesn't do much for us. It doesn't capture the glory of what that means. Jesus prays for his people. So are you someone who calls upon Christ? Do you call him your Lord and your God? Do you seek to honor him with your life? Do you seek to please him? Do you trust in him alone to save you from your sins? Well, then know, brothers and sisters, that Christ has prayed for you too. Satan demanded to have you as Satan would have everyone rebel against God, if he could. But Christ has prayed for your soul, that you would turn from sin and follow him. Christ has prayed for you that you would no longer be a slave to sin, that you would serve him instead with thankfulness and joy. Christ has prayed for you that you would not die in your sins and be subject to eternal damnation. And here's even more good news, is that Christ has not stopped praying for you. For that is what he does every day at the throne of God. He is interceding for his people. Jesus prays for you every day that your faith would not fail, that you would grow in holiness, and that Satan would not trap you. Brothers and sisters, give glory to God that he would do such a thing for us. Let us praise him together. Not only did he go to the cross to take our punishment, but he sits at the right hand of God, asking him to preserve us every day of our lives. So I ask again, do you trust in Christ to save you from your sins? Do you call him your Lord and your God? For if you cannot truly and fully answer yes, well, then you remain under the power of sin and Satan. If you cannot answer yes, then Christ may not be interceding for you. But friend, you must know that Christ will save all those who turn to him, who call upon his name. And so I invite you to call upon the great high priest who is mighty to save. Call upon the name of Jesus to save you from your sin and know that if you do so, 
all those things will be true of you as well. Christ will intercede for your soul. You also will not be lost under the control of Satan. You also will come to, into his kingdom one day and be told, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And you will know, as we all know, that when we hear those words, it will be the work of Christ that brought us there. And it will be the prayers, the intercession of Christ that kept us in grace. So do not delay. The Lord is ready to save you if you will call upon his name in faith. May we all give glory and thanks to our awesome Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.